This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. And this is Jay. Welcome to the TriTech Games podcast. Thank you for coming this week and every week to our new format where we not only discuss Fringeworthy, but we also discuss all the other games that TriTech produces. Tonight we're doing something a little different. This is actually a combined podcast. Because the topic that we're discussing really crosses over so many different games. And we wanted to see how it could be used in different games to give you some idea of the scope of what we're talking about. And what we're talking about tonight is escaping a virtual world. You're trapped in a virtual world. How do you know that you're actually in it? How do you figure out that you're really in the matrix, let's say. So what kind of possible ways could there be and things to, to keep you from figuring it out? And of course, once you do figure it out, what are the possible ways of actually escaping from it? Okay, let's move on to our third segment, which is you're in a virtual world. You discovered that you're in a virtual world. Now, how do you break out of it? Good question. If you're in a dream simulation, you got to wake up. But how do you wake up? What is the game master's goal? Like, for example, you're on a quest to get some item. And maybe that item is just some symbolic thing that once you find it, your heroes, because we keep, we keep talking as if it's one person in this thing. You're generally, when role players are playing, there's a whole party of people. Exactly. Yes. But, but once you find this, this key item, it'll trigger you all to wake up, you know, because if it's, it's some kind of dream, there's definitely psychic ability involved because. Uh, you're all interacting, so you must be communicating somehow. So it, it's got to be some level of psychic, whether it's magic psychic abilities or psionic psychic abilities or, or whatever. Or cybernetic. But at any rate, the, the point I'm making is, is that finding that key item would trigger that signal because, I mean, you're receiving signals that are making you do things and making you interact with the world. So there's no reason why you couldn't receive a signal when you touch this item that would cause you to wake up. That would trigger you to wake up. So completing the quest is one way of breaking out of the dream. Yes. Now, okay. actually, I love this one because this is actually from Deep Space Nine. And I know I hate talking about Star Trek, but there's this one where they're stuck in a holodeck simulation. They should ban holodecks, you know, by the way. It's a James Bond adventure. And no matter what they do, they cannot defeat the bad guy. And then suddenly, I think it's your Bashir or someone says, wait a second. What if we let the bad guy win? And you know what? It worked. Bad guy won. Simulation over. It had to reach an endpoint, and for whatever reason, it was a broken holodeck program. It wouldn't end until the bad guy won. That's fine if you can't really be killed. Yeah. Right. If nothing bad is going to happen by the bad guy winning, then everything's cool. Yeah. But, you know, if it's like Moriarty episode, yeah, bad guy winning is bad. They <laughs> <laughs> got the holodeck cranked up on 11. There's a D20 game, I mentioned this off mic, it's called Dreamwalker, and the way that you get out of a the dream world that you happen to be in is finishing what is known, and I'm going to mess up the French pronunciation of this word, 
the denouement. No, you got right. Oh, thank you. Uh, basically, it's the end of the dream. If you if you were having a dream, or if you're in a dream and the dreamer wants to, oh, I'll do something simple. He's at Coney Island and he wants to get over his fear of Ferris wheels and ride a Ferris wheel. Then you help the kid get on the Ferris wheel and ride, and that ends the dream and you get out of that sequence. It's something that, for a dream simulation, just finishing out what the dreamer wants to do in the dream. And that would be like your thing about... Again, completing the quest. Yes. If you're in a dream that's supposed to be simulating your reality or something like that, okay, then you are a person. And there are certain things that you like and you dislike. And if you stress yourself by causing yourself to come face-to-face with the things that that revolt you the most, that might cause enough cognitive dissonance that you would be forced to wake up. Mm Mm-hmm. So, for example, eating red hot peppers or smelling, smelling really bad smells or having to vote Republican <laughs> or – Wow. <laughs> really? <laughs> hey, we're not a political show. That was a joke. Yeah, yeah. We- that was a joke. Uh, but, but my point is, is that you engage in a sort of a self-loathing procedure where you try to do things that you absolutely hate for the whole purpose of shocking yourself mm-hmm. to the point where your body will force you to wake up you know, as a defensive mechanism. Yeah. I don't really have a whole lot of nightmares, but I have had a few where the nightmare gets so intense that you just shake yourself awake. Right. You know, you, you get jolted so bad that you wake up and, and generally you wake up like in a cold sweat or whatever. But yeah, I get what you're saying. That's yeah. you, you push the limits of the dream. Right. Well, you know, your your willingness to accept the dream. Yeah. You, you basically blow the fuse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you could be in a situation though where say you're in a dream, but make sure you don't wake up. They have you in a some sort of artificial sleep. You're finding the sleep machine is keeping you asleep at that point. So that may require say either a vigor or a uh, constitution or some sort to force yourself awake right if the dream solution is to make you fall unconscious mm-hmm. until you settle down and then it brings you back awake then that's not going to work mm-hmm. but assuming that it's not doing that then this is a way of waking yourself up yeah if this is a world in which there is a dreamer who is creating the dream well find that dreamer make his life unpleasant possibly even kill him and the dream the big question really is, in fact, for a lot of movies, they're like Paprika, Inception, Dreamscape. The question sometimes comes back with, did I wake up only to find out I'm still in the dream? Which is a cheesy thing sometimes to do. I think it's a really cheesy thing to do because yeah. there's no satisfaction. That, yes, of course, you could still be in a dream. You yeah, know? yeah. With a movie like Inception, where at the very end... Okay, Blix, put your hands over your ears. I'll, I'll tell you when you can listen. Put your hands over your ears. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I got my volume all the way down. The issue is left open. That's good for a one-shot story. It's not so good for, like, the whole rest of the campaign. That's true. Yeah, you have to have some sort of closure. You have to know when. Yeah, you have to shut it off to go on to the next thing. And also, let's face it, if you sit there and drag it on and drag it on, your players are going to lynch you after a while. <laughs> They're just not going to like that at all. Another possibility, destroy the dream world, literally. Yeah. Go into demolition mode. Start knocking down buildings. I mean, they've got this whole big political thing going on or some big, you know, gangster (laughs) type thing, and you start doing urban renewal, 
The system may decide to bump you out because you're messing up the dream for the other dreamers. <laughs> Characters who are good at this. This plays right to their strengths. If you're dreaming and you're more or less in a lucid dream, try to take control of the dream and start doing stuff. You know, we're not talking like destroying buildings, but reshaping the world to suit to suit your own needs at that point. So that point becomes a contest between you and the original dreamer. I'm not a fan of doing the whole will rolls thing. You're like, I, I disbelieve. Okay, make a will roll. Or a spirit check if you're in Savage Worlds. Right, yeah. or a spirit check, right. I don't know why it seems goofy to me, but it just does. I think if I was a game master, I would make sure that I could run a couple sessions in this world. You know, you know, a couple times where the characters would get breaks. So if I'm going to put them in this world, I'm going to keep them there for a little while. And then... I would allow them to buy experience points, and if I had to create a new edge or a new ability that they could purchase with their experience, or in, say, in D20, let them level up and give them a chance to get a special ability where they could start taking control of this dream world, then I would allow them to make, you know, spirit checks or will checks. I would make them buy that merit. The only problem with that is then you've bought this thing that you're stuck with because you may not come back there. Yes, but, I agree, Blix. Make that kind of a GM freebie. A yeah, one-time add-on for the game. Yeah, or after a while, unless you're running a specific campaign in that world, like in Dreamwalker, you're of the the group in the setting is Project Dreamwalker. Unless you're running specifically a Project Dreamwalker campaign, mm-hmm. those dream feats and mana feats and whatever that they have are going to be useless most of the time. So we're going to have to have it as a temporary thing where. It may be just GM fiat, okay, you have it for this particular adventure, and then when you go back to how the campaign is, it's not there anymore. You're not going to bother with it. It doesn't take up space on your character sheet. You haven't burned up experience points to get it or whatever. You're done. That's what I'm saying. Make the dreamwalking a kind of a GM freebie in order to facilitate a, the virtual game and then, leave it, and then leave it behind. Well, the other thing to worry about is you gain skills, are these skills real skills? Or are they the skills that, that your avatar gained and you really don't get them? I would say they're real because... Yeah. Um, even physical skills? Yeah, even physical skills because they, they've proven that thinking about doing a physical action can actually improve your ability to do the physical action. Also, it's kind of a cheat for the players to put effort into developing their characters to do things that you are setting up for them to do and then telling them, well, no, you can't do that anymore because it was just a virtual world. It's like saying me as a GM, okay, I want your character to jump over these hurdles. You buy jumping skills. And then I say, well, no, you can't have the jumping skills because that was a virtual world. What I've just done is ask you to put some of your XP or some of your or some of your character buying points into a hole. And then I said, nope, it's a hole. It's done. That's a cheat from the GM site. That's not good. I got kind of a solution for this. If you're going to do this, you're going to need to prep. If you're going to create new abilities, what you do is you create an alternate version that's outside of the virtual world that this would translate into once they get out. Like, for example, let's say you have the ability to start taking control of the dream world. Well, once you're outside of the dream world, you can use this same ability, but it would be for things like resisting mind control or something like that. Yeah. So it has a purpose outside, but it's a different purpose, but it's also kind of the same. So mixed-use GM tools. Yes. What you can do is that you can create two different analogs. I mean, you can have you know your character as it is in the, the virtual world and your character as it is 
outside of the virtual world with some kind of a translation between yeah. the new skills that you've developed with something that's out there or the new feats. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Blake, because I think that's an excellent idea. For example, is that if you had gained the ability to control something infringeworthy, hey, those points go right to bonuses to your uh, crystal use. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Or you gain you know, a feat that you might have might translate to a feat outside. If you have feats fly starship, you might turn that into pilot you know, aircraft on the outside. That, or you might have them run into starships at some point. Choosing something so that they have an analog so that when they come out of the virtual world, they don't have something that's only useful in the virtual world where you're not spending all your time in the virtual world. That's a big no-no. You don't want to make a hole and tell them to throw their skill points and their attributes or whatever it is that they've earned into that. You've got to give them something. And, and this is a metagame kind of a concept. This is how to make your players happy. It really doesn't have anything to do with the so-called virtual world. From a completely literary standpoint, it doesn't make any difference that your character may have spent 20 years becoming the head of a business or learning how to be a virtuoso with an instrument that doesn't exist and actually can't exist because of the physics involved in the virtual world. Oh, okay, I have all this skill. I've spent all this stuff, and I'm now 80 years old. My character's done. That makes sense from a literary standpoint, uh, a narrative standpoint, but it doesn't make any sense from a game standpoint. If you're in a situation, in a Tron game, in the Tron game, you got more agility. When you finally came out of the Tron game, you get rewritten a little bit. Yes, you do have better agility because, well, you know what? The Tron game's nice to you, and it rewrites your body so you actually have better agility now. Well, hey, John, they really went into the Tron world. They physically went in there. So when they physically come back out, Peer Program has to reread their biosignatures or whatever. So if it can read them on the way in, it can read them on the way out. Yeah, it disassembled him atom by atom. If you're doing it in the virtual world and you count it as getting better in the virtual world, then why not count it as, as be getting better in the real world? I don't see any issue there. That was a huge problem I had with the Matrix. It's like, okay, you just downloaded every fighting skill collected by man on computer media. Fine, you can do it in the Matrix, but in the real world, Neo is still fighting like a geek who may have learned to throw a punch. Never mind, in the Matrix, he's, you know, fighting computer programs and beating them. That was something I had a big problem with in the Matrix. It, that got under my skin, that he had all that downloaded. He should have been able to just, you know, in the real world, wipe the floor with anybody. I'm glad you brought that up, Trap, because I was one of the other things I thought of. Let's say you only want to have them in there for an adventure or two, and you're not really going to let players spend experience points before they get out of this place. Because you're like, you know, I didn't set up anything to where it'll translate when they come out. But I do want you guys to be able to get in this world and be able to, to function and, and you know play the games, ride the light cycles or whatever. You could always give them upgrades. And these would be things that you're giving to them for free that would allocate them to certain roles in this world. And when they get out, they lose them. But that's okay because it's not like they paid for them. Yep. You know, it's not like they had to work for these. They were given them. And they just lose them when they go out. But while they're in there, they can have you know they can have fun and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Their achievement goals. You've unlocked a portion of the program. Like, right. Yep. Like like the dementia song, <laughs> achievement unlocked. <laughs> or, or the you know power ups. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't do if you want to get crazy with like video game type stuff. You know, you're running along and you see a glowing ball. I oh, eat it. funny you mentioned that, Blix. There's a module, video game magic items, and they have like the one up written in D20 stats. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I mean, considering that, you know, Fringeworthy right now and, and, and Bureau 13 are both, you know, D20, there, there's a good book for you to use for this. 
the aftermath. The players come out of the virtual world. Depending on the virtual world they were in, it may be something that they can then take and use themselves. How portable is this virtual world mechanism that they use? Now, if it was, like we said, the portal doing it, or it was a village type deal, it's not very portable at all. But it gives them an idea for their own if they want to in the future. But if it's, say, it's a, it's a computer simulation of some sort, and it uses this really quantum computer that they can put in the back of the pickup truck. Yo, you mean like with induction bands that fit around the forehead or something like that? Yeah. If it's the fringe system, every portal is a doorway to this world if you know how to get in. Yep. You could walk out of Hatsumi Station and jump right into this world. Yeah. I'm also thinking of Bureau 13 where, okay, yeah, Ray Robertson gave you this gizmo that let you enter dreams. Do they take it back? Ah. And at that point, now you as a GM have to realize that even if they take it back, the players can always request it. Do you give it to them? And if you do, do you plan for that? Do you plan for the fact that they're going to use the dream technology to go into someone's dream and muck around with them that way? Here's a cool idea. Let's, let's say you've got Marvel uh, superhero cards laying around. Because you know, a lot of people played that for a while. I still have my cards. You, know, you could deal the players like three or four cards. Say you're in a dream world. And the, and the Game Master gives you, um, say, three or maybe even four of those cards. He says, all right, whatever powers are on those cards, you can access tonight when you play it you play it and it's good for you for the scene or it's good for you for a couple rounds and that would be you uh being able to imagine yourself doing create something crazy in that dream but you're limited to the number of cards you have and however long the DM, the game master sets for that that time limit and that's getting a little monty hall it's getting a little crazy but it could be for a fun night if the technology is portable and it can be used who wouldn't want to have a pet despair squid sitting in, in a tank with them? I mean, I know. Anybody who hasn't seen the show and has no idea what you're really talking about? Uh, uh, those who have would know exactly. You know, I would like to have one of those. <laughs> it, it sounds terrible. A despair squid? Yeah. It basically hits you with a neurotoxin that puts you into a... Uh, in- yeah, but I'm just saying, but it sounds terrible. Yeah. It is no fun. It's uh, from Red Dwarf, and it is one of their best episodes. I was yes. trying to find a way to adapt it as an RPG, but you know most people don't know their own characters that well. The spoiler, I don't know. It, is there anybody who hasn't seen it but thinks they might to it? They might want to at some point. Maybe, but go ahead. What happens is red dwarf PCs find themselves on an ocean world, looting some wrecks, and then something big comes along, and then they find themselves waking up out of a virtual environment, out of a virtual world. And yep. they find that, that Red Dwarf has been a VR game the whole time. And the reason why it was so sad, it boring, depressing, sucked so hard is because they were all playing it wrong. They were screwing up everything you could possibly screw up about the Red Dwarf game. You've been playing this whole time in GIMP mode? or <laughs> They go out into the world and they're told, well, because the game is so immersive, it might take a while for your virtual personas to die down a bit, but that will happen. And then they walk out and find out that they're in these lives that specifically assault how each character sees himself. So, for instance, Lister, who sees himself as an anarchist and a rebel, outside of the Red Dwarf virtual world, he's an assassin for the government. So was this like an an end episode? Was this sort of like the end of the series? No, because what happened was this. At the very end of it, each of the characters was something they hated or did something they hated. 
and then consequences were bearing down on them. And then we flip back to the Red Dwarf, their Starbug, and Holly, their AI, is yelling at them, and they're sitting in chairs. The world that they woke up in is the virtual world. And they were told their own world was the virtual world. And then this new world was tailored in specifically such a way as to make them feel horrible. So that when they committed suicide, by finding themselves being people they absolutely hated, they'd be easy prey for the despair squid. It seems like a lot of work, but, you know. <laughs> it made a hell of a game because, yeah, you're, you're finding out by this mirror image of each character what the character hated and how they saw themselves. Mm-hmm. Never been able to run this as a game for a conventional role-playing group because almost nobody knows their character that well, and almost nobody would deal with finding their character's self-image done in a twisted mirror this way. Guys? Yes, sir? Yep. Track, train. Ah, yes. Steering the good ship ADD back into Redland Bay. Well, I'm sorry. That's one of the fun parts of a virtual world is you can change all the assumptions about what the characters really think is going on but there's levels where it's hard to go. Yeah, we didn't even touch on places where the virtual world is also the normal world. I mean, so you walk through and suddenly you're a tune. Are you in a virtual world or are you just in a different universe? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be a weird space. Virtual worlds are silly. So there's many different kinds of virtual worlds. Not all of them are the Matrix. Some of them can be... A bunch of people role-playing around you trying to convince you that there's a different life that you've been experiencing. When you're in a story that has a virtual world, first of all, the story's got to have a purpose, and it has to engage all the players. And that offers the opportunity for the players to detect the fact that they're in a virtual world. And then at that point, they can decide whether to either to disrupt it, embrace it, take control of it, or uh, possibly even complete the quest if they consider it worthwhile. And upon doing that, they may end up becoming better people as a result. They may learn skills. They may cause the destruction of the planet, as we know. It's up to the GM to make an interesting adventure and for the players to really work their minds around. So we hope that you've had fun with this exploration of the virtual realities and got some ideas about what you could do to your players when you, they took them through the various wonderlands of your own campaign. So we hope that you will find opportunities to use virtual reality in fun and interesting ways in your campaign. If you do, please let us know by contacting our various news groups at TriTacGamers.com or Yahoo Group or even our Facebook page. We'll be looking forward to seeing you in our virtual space to hear all about your adventures. And we'll have more for you about this in the future. But until then, be seeing you. What we want to talk about, putting Fringeworthy into an established campaign and without shoehorning Fringeworthy into it. We've been talking all this time saying, yeah, you can put Fringeworthy into your campaign and it'll be great and it'll really give them something else to do. Okay, now we got to put some flesh on those bones. You know, we want to talk about what would be a great idea and, and where would you do things and how would you add that into some of these well-known existing campaigns, existing worlds that are being published. I'm supposed to be doing the one on D&D, &D, so 
Uh, there's a number of established campaigns out there. There's Blackmore, the Forgotten Realms. Eberron, Dark Sun, Greyhawk, Land. I know there's more because there was like 12 different worlds that were being supported by TSR back in the day, you know, including the Alibaba one. Al-Kadir, I believe. Al-Kadir. Planescape. Oh, Spelljammer. Histara, Birthright. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. Yeah, there were like 12, 13, 14 settings. What, with Star Frontiers, wasn't the ship and Barrier Peaks from Star Frontiers? No. That was from Metamorphosis Alpha. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, I don't know. Actually, I have no idea what that is. And actually, Star Frontiers got melted into D20 Future. If you look at all the yeah. aliens, they're from the original game. Okay, what was the other one? The Barrier Peaks, would they come from? Metamorphosis? Yep. This Metamorphosis Alpha by James Ward. Starship suffers through some type of space accident, and the ship splits off into, like, maybe five or six levels of the ship will go off in one direction, and another five levels of the ship will go off in another and one of those six levels chunks landed on Earth in the barrier peaks. And so you had robots and power armor and strange alien life forms roaming around the ship. Right. But wasn't the actual game of Metamorphosis Alpha you exploring the derelict spaceship in space? Yeah. You, were, you, didn't, you didn't realize that it actually wasn't a world. It was, you didn't know it was a ship. You just assumed it was a world. Yeah, you were a crew. No, you weren't crew. You were the people in stasis or something. Well, yeah, same difference, but yeah. Well, the crew was dead, is the point. Oh, yeah, you're the frozen people. Right. Sounds kind of like the setup to Incursion. More of the setup to Moral Project. Actually, it was a ripoff of the Heinlein story. Yeah, the the, the Orphans of the Sky. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But since you're talking about those types of things, another existing campaign would therefore be Gamma World. Oh, yeah. Gangrene World, yep. (laughs) one of my best characters was in gamma world so how would you do this what would be the prime let's talk about these different campaigns let's just pick forgotten realms because this is fringe worthy all the important things having to do with these worlds happened a thousand years ago it's very likely that in a D&D world you're going to find that the portal is in a ruin somewhere right because you've got spells like Detect Magic, they could actually detect a warp, maybe, and it would be this thing that they, they've got the whole religion around. Maybe you got one of the humanoid races, like the, the frog guys that are uh, under the water, or um, maybe gnolls or something like that. They'd all be worshipping this strange thing, this thing they could detect, but they, but, and, 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 but they couldn't touch and everything else like that. And then you guys come walking through, and at which point... You then get an opportunity, they all fall down, and and you now have minions. From the standpoint of a campaign where you've got players out there playing adventuring groups, they're going to hear about, you've already come through and you're starting this exploration, so you're starting to arm all of the the, the local humanoids, and they're going to start coming out with all kinds of advanced equipment, maybe body armor and other things like that, that has never been seen before on this world. The player characters are going to start running into people with this kinds of advanced equipment, not going to know what to do about it. And this is, of course, assuming that your technology is going to work on this magical D&D world, uh, which I would recommend. 
because you know if you want to bring fringeworthy in, it doesn't make sense to nerf it. The fringeworthy aspect of it. Now, granted, you know you're not going to want to bring in huge stuff like fuel air bombs and and uh, you know giant cannons and stuff like that. But you could bring airplanes. You could bring airships, and then you you know you've got people who got flying uh, things like hippogriffs and and things like that flying around, and you run into some guy who's got a uh, helicopter, for example. And you get too close to it, and uh, that blade cuts your uh, mount out from underneath you, probably taking out the helicopter at the same time. But then they all go crashing down. Here's this giant bug flying at you. Or you have uh, a number of things like robotic probes, like some of the aerial unmanned vehicles flying around. They're going to look an awful lot like some of the uh, wondrous tokens. They would be very strange indeed to somebody without uh, 20th century eyes. A GM would have to be really creative to describe these things in such a way as the players didn't immediately pick up on, you know, what are you doing crossing genres on us and bringing that unmanned drone in here? Right. Well, that would be the point. I mean, this would be intentional. The players might not like it, but the gym would be intentionally doing it. The whole idea being, of course, that once they do find it, then maybe the mage can research a spell and figure out how to at least temporarily make everybody fringeworthy. Right. So we're we're going from the aspect of you guys are playing D&D characters right. and the DMs bringing fringeworthy into D&D. Right. And so you have two opportunities here. Either they find a D&D portal. I mean, they find a fringeworthy portal and they utilize it to do their own exploration. So you could have them going out onto the uh, the platform and then they go uh, and they use, it's, let's say it's a prime. Uh, and then they go through one of the por- other portals. They find themselves way on the other side of the world in a location that would be completely unfindable or you'd have to go on a journey of, of, of months, if not years, to reach under the normal uh, D&D-type movement. So we got two different campaigns. One is they encounter the fringe where the U- D&D characters encountering Unita and exploring parties coming through. And another one where the D&D parties are essentially doing their own year zero on their own prime. Right. Or they could be running into fringe pirates. Ow. Hilarity would ensue. Right. So that that makes the uh, fringe worthy the bad guys. And then when they defeat them, then they can go ahead and do the exploration. Mm-hmm. You could either make the adventurers automatically fringe-worthy, or you could use some kind, like I say, the best, easiest way of doing it would be some kind of magical effect, or even the better way of doing it, I'm, I'm saying to myself, is we got gods in this fringe-worthy world. The god looks down and says, I want you to go find out what's going on there. I give you the fringe-worthiness. And off you go, right? One of the gods is the god of travelers, as a matter of fact. He would be the perfect one to grant fringe-worthiness to the adventuring team. You would have to know this ahead of time. You could actually assemble the party by having, you know, everybody makes up their character, and you start the whole campaign by saying, a wizard came to your town carrying a special medallion, and he identified you and, and said that the king was looking for people or whatever, and actually yeah. put the party together. But they don't know what that means. You know, you let the adventure go for some time, the campaign go for some time, maybe even five or six months, and then that's when you introduce the portal. And it turns out that what he was, he didn't know it even, but they were finding fringeworthy people. Mm. I mean, that would be a real plausible way to do it, is what I'm saying, but you'd have to know that ahead of time. You'd have to have started off with the idea of a D&D fringeworthy game. Yes. And like I said, the medallions are actually a crystal key. Of course, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. 
the Medallions of Crystal Keen, as they find fringeworthy people, they're gathering them together, and they're gathering them together for the entirely the wrong reason. You know, they just they think, think it's the it, special. They think the key is marking out uh, people touched by the deity exactly. or something. Right, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So that would be that would be a cool way to do that. Again, well, but, but, you'd but have to know ahead of time. Would the wizard just be getting them together because the medallion tells them to? Or do the wizard and, say, the king, they know about this portal and they are looking for oh. it? Well, it could be either way. You could kind of do a uh, D&D X-Files thing where they don't know what all the uh, king and, and his ministers know until uh, they find out yeah. the hard way. Yeah, and right. the other thing, too, is if you want to make them think that it's, it is a D&D style adventure, well, they're fighting these strange spider people that come there and appearing out of nowhere. And they're, who says French pirates have to be humans? Yeah. Humanoid. They could, yeah, they could be. You could be dealing with the mixy uh, fringe pirates. Yeah, mine are always a mix. There, there's some human, but there's also lots of other races too. Yeah, so you could actually have a mix there, and then basically you're showing up, raiding the place, and of course, figure we see him come out of this hole, this this portal. You, you look at it, it's like that's a portal. Portals are a normal trope for D and D. You can even get even more complex with the story. You could say that the wizard is actually somebody from Unida. I was trying to get recruits, and he's doing it through that whole guise. Undercover as a wizard in that world. Yes, yes. Uh, don't forget, there is the original undercover person. It could be an old Meller. Who's could been, be. He's realizing that there's problems. The, the pearl turned back on again, and now there's stuff coming through, and it's not good. An old Meller's good, because then that wizard could be this old man who's been around as long as anyone can remember. Three kings now he's been around. He's a very powerful wizard. Yeah. Right, exactly. But he did go up and bring back a new apprentice. So, <laughs> so Gandalf is an old Miller. Oh, my goodness. Right. There you go. Sure. Gandalf or Merlin. Yeah. Right. And, and he could even youth. <laughs> You're going to do that. You could pick a prime. Greyhawk is the prime. And then your alternates could be, you know, Fading Suns or... Yeah, you'd have to map them out. And their on their uh, relationship to each other, right. right? That wouldn't be too hard if you knew you were doing such a thing to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it would definitely give you an opportunity for like tr- going to to different kinds of campaigns. If a uh, GM had a D and D game that was starting to show its age, that was starting to get a little bit stiff from being too old a game, how could he jangle things up by introducing Fringeworthy? By bringing in technology, you'd have to ask yourself, you know, does is it immune to certain things uh, because it's from another universe? Does it grant it special powers? I think it'd be more fun to do it later, you know, like a uh, like high level characters than low level characters, because that way you could bring all kinds of stuff through the portal, or they could go through and getting cut off. If they go through the portal, they're going to be getting cut off from their support system. I mean, you know, the, the world was they could have. Now, that's not too bad for, for uh, a D&D t- uh, group because they're used to that kind of. Well, actually, when I first started playing D&D, we'd go into the dungeon. We'd kick some butt, get our butts kicked. Then we'd come back to town, get healed up, get some more healing potions and things like that, then go back in. So if that's your campaign, then going through the portal... Unless when you go to the portal, it puts you right in the midst of something. And, and that's really what I, I think is, is probably what I think is going to be a big trope that Firms really brings is that instantaneous transportation. You're on one side, you've got you know, the dragon layer. On the other side, you've got the fringe path. 
the dragon isn't fringe worthy. You are. So you run through, you grab some stuff, the dragon is, ah! You turn around and you run back and go through the portal. What's the dragon going to do? Well, he can breathe through the portal. Maybe that would work. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? If the, if the, if the dragon breath came mm. through the portal, but the dragon himself um, wasn't fringe worthy? I would think that if you fight, um, well, what's the rule on firing an energy weapon at the portal? Same as a bullet? Uh, it, it all comes down to whether or not you're fringeworthy who fires it. I thought if anybody fired at a working portal, it shot. No, it only happens if someone is, is actually in the process of going through the portal. Only while they're in transit does, the por does that defense activate in this edition of fringeworthy. Does, oh, is it oh, is it a person or something? Can I just throw start feeding a rope through and hope that he breathes? A person would have to be in transit. Okay, I, I think it would be a person too, or a person inside of a vehicle or something like that. Yeah, the question that was raised during this uh, design process was why does an indestructible artifact like the fringe pass, especially fringe portals, where it says nothing can hurt them, ever? Yeah, why does it need a defense system? There's only two reasons to do that. One is to zap the Meller. Okay. And the second reason is to protect people who are transiting. Because otherwise we kind of said, yeah, I think Richard put that in the game to make the game a little bit more interesting. Because some guy would say, hey, let's take a pot shot at the portal. Zap, dead. Okay. Or I'm running, I'm getting zapped, and uh, you know, I'm hoping that I can get through another portal before you know this thing kills me with his D100 damage per round. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. If the portal rolls low, you might be able to survive it. And if you jump behind a plate or inside of a vehicle, then you hope the vehicle will last long enough for you to drive it through a portal and, and escape the, the, the system. I've only seen it used like twice, and it's always sucked for the players. From the standpoint of where to put portals, like I said, is that I think that ruins misty places where it's supposed to be very mysterious and strange things are supposed to happen, that would be really good for, to put portals at because when you run into it, then of course the very atmosphere surrounding it is going to make it seem all so exciting and, and scary, even menacing when you see the portal. It could also not be the, the full ring. It could actually be a warp, right. which is why no one's seen it. In right. The well, that was where I had the thing where they, they were worshipping. They could use magic to detect the warp, but they couldn't actually see it. So they were worshipping this unseen presence that was always amongst them. Until finally somebody stepped out from it, and then they're like, oh, the gods have come. You, you, you say, oh, well, look, these, these very nice you know, doggy-type creatures, you, you know, you know they, they want to work with us, and, and they want to be friends and set up trade. And all kinds of stuff, you know, and and, me, and, and before you know it, you you, you basically uh, raised the uh, Null uh, kingdoms from uh, Stone Age up to pretty close to the Iron Age. Meanwhile, uh -huh. everybody else is is operating on this kind of a magical Bronze Age. So and going, where in the world did the uh, Nulls get all this technology? Yeah, this steel is better than adamantite. <laughs> How's that possible? Well, actually, it can, but yeah. <laughs> All right, I exaggerated. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than mithril, all right? Our, our magical weapons, you know, seem to have... It's no, better no, than a human forged sword. Yeah, uh, yeah they, 
these, these these magical weapons seem to have no no effect on this armor that's that has a, a few layers of diamond you know uh, built into the outside layer. It won't rust. The rust monster comes up, whack whack whack, and your armor is just fine. How can that be? Well, it's sealed within like a diamond sheath or something like that. So, you know, there's things you could do that that, that you know using the uh, advanced technology that could be available through Fringeworthy on a, a D&D type world. That was kind of what my ideas were along those lines. Now, you know, if, it, if, if we're talking about Planescape, well, they've got portals everywhere. So you might actually have a Fringeworthy portal and, and, and most people just think that one's broken. You know, it's, you're literally lost amongst all the different portals that are, that are hither and yon over that kind of a place. And so you just go walking through and you're like, hey, we're from another dimension. Yeah, so... <laughs> Which plane are you from? Um, <laughs> the fringe plane? <laughs> well, so the GM really has to kind of make up his mind how he wants the different uh, the, the fringe platforms to interrelate to his world. What is he trying to achieve with the fringe things? Are you just creating a new threat? Are you creating uh, new technology? Are you opening up new places for the PCs to explore and possibly violently loot? Exactly. Because when they go through, you know, using their fantasy-informed uh, eyes, you know, when they see science, they're going to think magic. Well, you bring the Arthur C. Clarke phrase into play. Right. But, yeah. but it doesn't have to be that advanced. I'm just saying is you know, sufficiently advanced. So they go through and they see we take this piece of iron, you know, we, we, we stick one end of it into this hole in the wall and it magically heats up, you know, because obviously there's no steam coming through and the plate's not hot. So it must be some kind of a magical conduit using electricity. Yeah. So, yeah. Induction heating, yeah. <laughs> right, or, or induction heating would be another thing. I, I know people created traps like that uh, in a kind of a steampunk type situation where they use steam to run a turbine, which would create magnetic energy, and you have some guy staying in armor right above where the, you know, the fields, the, the magnetic fields are flowing through, and it's going so fast, it doesn't actually pull him right or left or anything like that, but it causes his armor to get red hot. And, bef Ooh. and before he can get out of you know, the armor, he's cooked. Yeah, that would be a bad day. That's 30 degree burns over his body. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, I, well, and I've seen yeah, that. With in, a cleric and magic healing, he might live through that. Right. Uh, but I, I've seen them do that in regular D&D &D games where they tried to bring in a certain amount of technology. If you had that kind of campaign where you were willing to have some chocolate in your peanut butter, which, of course, is what we're talking about here with Fringeworthy. There's no point in, in, in adding Fringeworthy to a game unless you're willing to embrace the, the cross-genre aspects of it. You can still do that, but, I mean, there are certain people that are going to have, okay, technology beyond, oh, clockwork-level technology. Well, that's fine. Let's say these adventurers go through the fringe portal that they've discovered, and they try to bring their guns back, and they don't work due to the laws of physics. Let's say gunpowder doesn't work. Or, like I mentioned in a... a an email, divine power says, no, this, we do not want this level of technology in the world. Well, they can still use the technology when they go off world. It's just basically they got to leave their guns like in a place hidden near the portal so they can pick them up when they go back to the portal. In Greyhawk, they have that only the paladins of the demigod Merlin, who was actually a Wild West character that got shunted to Greyhawk, 
They're the only ones that can use technology as far as firearms. Of course, the Barrier Peaks ship, well, that's all technology, so that's another area where it can be used. So it's kind of dicey. There. Right. But there are certain PMs that just say, in this game world, a certain level of technology does not work due to either the laws of physics or divine decree. Right. And that's just something you've got to take into account when you run a D&D campaign and bring in Fringeworthy, is that are they going to be able to use these firearms right. um, due to how chemistry is? Would a Kevlar vest just disintegrate? Yeah, or, or or you know, you go through, you wait the fifteen minutes, you turn on, you, you turn on, the, you try to turn the engine over, it won't start. Right. You check That's everything. Awesome. You check everything. You know the batteries. Yeah, you got to plant acid in the batteries. Everything should be working, but you're getting no electricity. The second world source book goes into that about why certain things may not work, and they have actually a technology flow chart saying, okay, if you've learned basic chemistry and you have precision machinery, you can make firearms. But if you don't have those two facets in your society have been discovered, or if they are hard-blocked, no, it does not work on this world no matter what. Yeah. I've been told that without the proper kinds of oils that re require some fairly sophisticated refining techniques, the modern mechanisms for firing and the automatic reloading type aspects of, of weapons don't work. So you would be reduced to single shot, you know, like Revolver. revolvers or, yeah. or bolt action rifles, or even worse, you know, just just a clear old uh, musket. A lot of mechanical oil was whale oil. Yeah. <laughs> but because we stopped hunting whales, we had to make artificial stuff. So whale oil actually is fine enough, but you have to kill a whale to get it, okay. which is a whole another adventure. And some players may go, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm not that. You pick a monster in the D&D &D world, you say that's the monster that has the oil you need to make your weapons continue to work. So you're going to have to go start hunting beholders or <laughs> dragons or uh, griffins or uh, or even worse, uh, rust monsters. Yeah. Oh, that'd be nasty. Rust monsters actually have the oil you need to keep your weaponry working. Highly refine it. Otherwise, you add your weapon, poof. Oh, and, of course, in the process of trying to get the oil, you end up destroying most of your steel devices. That's when the guys show up with ceramic swords. Ceramic swords are a nice idea, as long as you have a nice iron core in the suckers. Otherwise, right. yeah. Yes. So in a fantasy world, adding friends really allows you to introduce all kinds of technological Products. I'm not saying necessarily processes like electricity and television and walkie-talkies and stuff like that, but it does allow you to introduce a lot of things that could be made by technology on another world and then brought here and it would still work, even if the processes that they otherwise would have been used to make them aren't possible in this world, which falls the trope of the ancients who had these techniques for making things that have been lost and nobody can make them anymore. So all we have are these ancient artifacts that hopefully people aren't going to break and so they can be passed on down to succeeding generations. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. This is Jay. Keep it simple. The players are going to complicate it for you. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming.
It's for having fun. The Tri-Tech Podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The Tri-Tech Podcast is wholly owned by Tri-Tech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.